So Money episode 274, Kim Palmer. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I want to say it was about eight, nine years ago when I first connected with our guest today. She is a fellow financial guru, journalist, works as the senior money editor at US News and World Report. Her name is Kimberly Palmer. She's also the author of The Economy of You, Discover Your Inner Entrepreneur and Recession-Proof Your Life. She is going to be publishing a brand new book coming out next summer. And so she's here early giving us some of the details about that as she's writing it in the process. It's called Smart Mom, Rich Mom, How to Build Wealth While Raising a Family. Kimberly is a mom of two. She also serves as an adjunct professor at American University, where she teaches a mastering social media course. Throughout our conversation, we go down memory lane, talk about when we first met. We talk about her sidepreneur income. You know, she's got this big job at U.S. News, but she's also working outside of her nine to five. What is she doing and how does it help support her full time income? How can working parents afford childcare? Really? And why she likes to save more than she likes to spend? Really? Mm hmm. Here is Kim Palmer. Kim Palmer. Welcome to So Money, my friend. Do you remember the first time we connected when it was? Oh my gosh, I do. Yes, it was right when your first book came out. Yes. So you and I have both been in this personal finance space for a long time. You at US News and World Report. I remember you were one of the first journalists to ever really get me, (laughs) you know, and like be supportive of the work that I was doing. I had a new book out. I didn't know if anyone was going to read it. You decided to do a story on it. And since then we've had this great kinship and working relationship, really. I feel like you and I just are constantly asking each other for help and advice. And it's nice to see that your career has just really blossomed. You are, as I said, the money editor, senior money editor now at US News and World Report, author of Generation Earn, author of The Economy of You, Discovery your inner entrepreneur and recession proof your life. And now you're working on a third book and you're a mom. So let's talk about, let's talk about the third book that's coming out because that's really your life currently, right? You're a smart mom, yeah. you're a rich mom, which is by the way, the title of the book, smart mom, rich mom. I love it. Thank you. I was just reading about how it's the cost of childcare has gone through the roof. You know this, I know this, to the point where parents, usually moms, feel the need to opt out. I want to talk to you about that, but first let's talk about why you wanted to write the book in general. Yeah. Well, basically when I became a mom, I felt like everything about my finances changed. I felt more pressure. I wanted to make sure we were financially secure. So I felt in a way more financially ambitious than I'd ever felt before. And also more financially stressed. I mean, as you know, too, my costs just went through the roof. Like my credit card bills doubled, all the diapers and extra food and, you know, childcare. So all of those things together, plus the fact that moms, really, we make so many choices about our families, money and spending. 
And so I felt like I wanted to write about it. I wanted to write a guide for moms, how to manage our money better. So how do you manage your money better? What's worked for you? Well, the biggest thing probably is getting ultra, ultra organized. So I actually, I do everything with binders. So I have binders for all of our different accounts. So like bank accounts, insurance accounts, any debt we owe, like like our mortgage or student loans. And I, I keep it all in a binder. And I basically, my husband and I go through it together at least once a month and doing it together, kind of just reviewing it together and talking through different goals we have. It's helped us make better decisions. Like just in the past year, we finally opened up 529 accounts, college savings accounts for our kids. So really, it's just about planning, talking about our goals together and making sure we're not forgetting to do things or letting things slide. I feel like we're constantly having to update things like life insurance and, you know, stuff that's not really even that fun to talk about, like your estate planning, but it's so important for parents to do. You got to take care of the boring stuff first, as I always say. And I actually just learned a great bit of advice from Elise Glink, who is her episode is yet to air, but I'll share a little bit of that because I think it's really relative and relevant, I should say, to new parents and anyone who's going through a new stage in life. You know, there's your old life and now there's your new life. And the way that you were spending is just not going to line up with your new life and your new needs. Um, as many parents know, as many uh, business owners know, as many um, people who are, you know, tr- relocating will discover. But what she advises is going to ground zero with your budget, like literally taking everything out of the budget and starting from zero and building that budget back up and starting with the things that you absolutely have to take care of, such as the mortgage, food, gas, insurance, like these things we have to address. Otherwise we'll be in big trouble. And then on top of that, you know, what are our wants and forget what you used to have, forget what you were, you, you used to be subscribing to. I think that's a great exercise for anyone, particularly parents as they're now embarking on a new journey, new needs, new wants. You got to reset the budget and just take everything out and start from scratch. And you'll realize, you know what? Um, that Netflix subscription, who has time to watch movies <laughs> when you're a parent? I mean, unless you're up feeding late, which that, by the way, is where, you know, having cable helps. But um, good point. That's a really good point. And I look forward to that book. It comes out next summer. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know this, you know, the, the cost of childcare has gotten so high. It surpassed inflation. Um, corporate wages are stagnant. And so... Uh, what can families do? I mean, is it just that you have to opt out or can you give, can you give us some hope? Uh, what are some ways where parents can stay in the workforce, continue to make money and afford childcare without going broke? It is so hard. And I, what I really found from talking to other moms too, and this ended up being what we do ourselves, you have to really take the long-term view. I mean, you and I have talked about this before too. When you completely opt out and have a period of years when you're not working at all and not earning any income, it's not just costing you for that income, but it also means you're probably saving less for retirement. You might have higher health insurance costs because you're all on one plan and it can end up you're not getting those benefits from your job. So you're actually sacrificing so much more than just that income, just your annual salary. So really helps to step back and think about it that way. And then also just finding creative childcare methods that that do cost a little less. I mean, the standard I live in the Washington, D.C. area. 
the average childcare cost for full-time daycare is $2,000 for a baby each month. And that's crazy. I mean, it's so expensive. So, you know, parents do different things where they can, one of my, my neighbors, actually, the husband and wife flex their schedule. So they're really minimizing the amount of childcare and babysitting they need. So it costs them less. The, the dad goes to work at like 5 a.m. and the mom goes to work at like 11 and then, you know, they just stagger their hours more. So, I mean, there are creative ways where you can figure out how you can pay a little bit less than the insane costs, monthly costs. Um, but it's also just about hanging in there. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all, we go through this crunch time when our kids are really young and the childcare costs are at their peak and then you get through it. I mean, my daughter, my oldest, we have two children. My oldest just started kindergarten which, you know, now the childcare costs have gone down so much. So it's really just this small period of years that you kind of have to just get through and survive. And sometimes it feels like that month to month basis, your, your costs are so high. But once you get through it, then you still have your income, you can still be growing that and you can pay less for childcare. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Kim. You know, and I was just reading an article, I think it was on fortune.com about how some parents are making do with the this, the economic situation of making barely enough to cover childcare. So maybe one parent has to quit, but you know what? Parents are leaving their jobs and finding better ones. They're starting their own businesses. They're um, perhaps opting out, but like you said, keeping a long-term view. I'm not opting out forever. I might give myself a year, 18 months, two years to you know, save the, on the childcare costs that I would have spent. But in the meantime, I'm staying active mentally and physically to be able to position myself again in a good way to get a job when my kids are a little bit older and I have more time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tough, but I agree. You got to be creative, have a long-term view. And honestly, government needs to wake up to this crisis. Employers need to wake up to this crisis and realize that when families win in this country, everybody wins and they have to, you know, improve their policies to make it more nurturing and supportive of families so that they can work and have a life. How about that? Yeah, I totally agree. And okay. I mean, speaking of that, I was just going to mention, um, there's so many policies that are being debated now. Like the um, one that really gets to me is the, how we don't get any social security credits if we're having, if we're caregiving full time. So it's such a hot button topic for moms and dads who stay at home, um, and something that would help save for retirement if you can get credits for the years that you're not necessarily earning a salary, but you're caring full time for your kids. Exactly. Yeah. So I know you've written about this extensively. So everybody check out uh, Kim's work at US News. She writes about this. And of course, the book will have lots of solutions as well. Kim, you've been covering personal finance and entrepreneurship for so many years as not just a reporter, but you really do walk the walk as well. What's your financial philosophy on, on things? What's your money mantra? I would say it's spend money to save time and living by this, which I do runs counter to some popular financial advice, but it really is what kind of makes my life work. I mean, as a busy working mom, if I can spend extra money to get household items delivered to my door, that is so worth it to me. Or, you know, buying pre-made meals or things that just make our day go a little better and make it possible to be a working parent. Um, So I really look to kind of um, spend more money on the things that will end up saving us energy and time as a family. And then I let go of a lot of the more kind of 
pricey material things that would just suck more energy. So for example, like I don't worry at all so much about new clothes for my kids. We're such, we do so many hand-me-downs from neighbors and friends and it saves us so much money. So really that time money trade-off, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Whereas some people would say, uh, why should I spend my money to do the things that I can do? And it's a hot issue in this country. I think there are two schools of thought. I think there are more people who are gravitating towards the uh, towards the outsourcing camp. You know, they realize there's, and then now you can do it for on the cheap. You know, there are so many ways to get help, and you don't have to hire a full time house cleaner. You know, you can get someone to come in, and there's so much demand to help people in the service area when it comes to domestic stuff that you can find good deals. So I. Agree with you. It's a big issue on this ta- on this podcast and I'm a big fan of outsourcing. As Tim Ferriss said on this show, uh, you, he doesn't, what did he say? Something like, there are no millionaires in this world um, who didn't at least for at least a few things outsource <laughs> their responsibilities. And yeah. it's true because at some point, you know, time is limited. And if you're spending your time doing things that don't make you money and don't make you happy, well, you're going to hit a dead end. For sure. What is your greatest money memory as a kid, Kim? You live in D.C. now. Um, (laughs) You're a mom now. Take us back to little Kim Palmer growing up wherever you grew up and share a story about how you first learned about money or uh, learned something significant about money. Okay. Well, I mean, really, my parents, I think, are the reason I write about money now. They still are so Frugal. So my earliest money memory was when you say I was, that so exhaustedly. <laughs> it is. It can be exhausting. Well, you'll, when you hear this story, you'll know why. So basically, I think I was in second grade. I really desperately wanted a pet, specifically a hamster. And so when I told my parents this that I wanted a hamster, they made me basically write a report, including line items for all of the costs all of the estimated expenses, ongoing monthly recurring expenses, as well as the initial startup costs of buying a pet. And I had to basically argue to them. I could barely write at the time, you know, I was just learning. So I had to argue to them and go through each line item, explain how I could afford it. I had a, you know, minimal allowance, could just barely pay for it. I think I ended up, they subsidized it, but I had to pay for a portion and basically that experience for, and this applied to everything. So they eventually I successfully argued for the pet, but anytime I wanted to buy anything, I had to go through this process with them and basically justify the cost. And that's kind of what I do now. I mean, that's, I think why I think and maybe obsess over purchases so much and make sure I get the best price and just spend so much effort thinking about the money side of things because that's how I grew up. <laughs> so it worked despite the eye rolls. It, it did. I mean, it worked. I mean, it did, but it was not always easy. And I mean, I, we never bought anything just on a whim or like, you know, standing in line at the store. I want that. And I, I actually am kind of worried with how I'm raising my kids now just because of online shopping. And like, if they want a book or a toy, I can click a button, you know, and Amazon can send it. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like, we had to really lobby for every single purchase we made. And I think that was better. I mean, I think it taught me those frugal lessons that like embedded it in my thought process. Absolutely. I, 
I my son's not of the age yet where he understands immediacy. Although, let's be honest, he's 15 months. He wants what he wants right now. Yeah. And depending on my patience, <laughs> he might just get what he wants. Um, but yeah, when they're older, delayed teaching delayed gratification is, I think, harder and harder than it was for our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation. You actually have to – the idea of having to wait for anything is like – we don't tolerate that anymore in our society. So how can we teach that to our children? Um, it's going to be a, take a lot of consciousness. What is your number one financial disaster? I want to hear about failure now. Can we talk about this, show, uh, this on the show a lot? What's an example of a time in your life where you just had an epic money money disaster fail? Yeah. Well, sadly, it was about investing. It was when I was just starting to invest. So I was um, actually a freshman in college. My parents had encouraged me to open up an investing account. It had their name on it too, but um, I was in charge of it. And when I was in high school, like and the internet was like <laughs> the new thing that sounds so long ago. I learned but, about know, Google in, in, the, in college. <laughs> I was like, what the heck yeah. is Google? Yeah. I mean, it's in, you know, not such distant memory. But the internet and tech stocks were blowing up when I was like a senior in high school. So I was like, okay, my $1,000 that I'm investing, I'm going to put it all in that. And then, of course, you know, a year later, when I'm a freshman in college, tech, the tech bubble completely burst. And I essentially lost all my money. But instead of, which I know now I should have done, instead of saying, okay, I'll be a patient investor, stick with my plan, don't buy high and sell low. I did exactly that. I sold when everything, like like the day after everything had crashed and oh. literally basically lost a thousand dollars, all my money. And yeah, it was really sad and it kind of scarred me and it took me a while to feel comfortable investing again. And um, I mean, still, I tend to invest way more conservative, like I'm on the more conservative side of things, which is what I'm comfort- comfortable with. And so that was my big failure. It was expensive. Yeah. Well, at least you learned it young enough, early on enough, and you were able to, you know, uh, make up for that over the years. How do you invest now? Are you pretty much a passive investor? Totally. I'm all about the index funds and, you know, checking in quarterly or so, but very hands off and I'm not picking specific stocks. Um, definitely like index funds and for longer term things like retirement and, college savings. I, I even like target date funds where I, you know, don't even have to like the rebalancing is happening for me. So now that's my approach. I want to talk also about the fact that you, while you have this uh, day job, of course, writing about personal finance, editing personal finance stories at us news. Um, you also are an entrepreneur and I think that's very smart, very inspiring, particularly for moms out there that want to look to diversify their revenue streams and have a little bit more job security. How can you take us to the other side of your job equation, like the, the work that you're doing independently and how that's going? And are you ever going to leave your day job? I hope not. I love my day job. Um, but it was actually when my daughter was born um, six years, almost six years ago, when I realized it was also during the recession. So I just realized, you know, I need more job security than just a single job can give me. And that's when I started freelancing more. I started I started my Etsy shop of money planners that led to my book, The Economy of You. And I, I just made sure to be investing in my ability to earn outside my main job because of what we're talking about. I mean, 
I wanted to make sure I could provide for my, my family. If, you know, God forbid I lost my job, that would be so incredibly stressful. And to make sure I still had the ability to earn money became even more important to me. So that's when I launched my Etsy shop and just made sure to keep um, building outside things, entrepreneurial things. That's great. And I have to say, I'm pretty impressed that you've been able to keep that day job through the recession. I got laid off. Uh, you have managed to not only maintain the job, but really get uh, promoted. So your best advice for somebody who is working the nine to five, enjoys it, and wants the job security on the job? I I think you have to, first of all, you can't let your entrepreneurial suits like take away your focus from your job. So definitely investing in your number one job first. That's after all, what's giving you the bulk of your income and your benefits and your security. Um, and then making sure what really helped me is making sure my outside pursuits always gelled with my main job and even helped my main job. So, you know, when I write a book, it helped, it's good for us news too, because then I publish excerpts for us news first and, you know, helped get our brand out, us news's brand out as well. So making them work together and not in conflict is really key. I agree. And you're fortunate U.S. News supports this, gets it, that it's a win-win for them and for you. Some companies, uh, older media establishments, I won't name names, but I think there is a mentality among some there at the high level that you need to work for us and we are the brand and you are just um, the monkey at the computer. Um, But so, uh, you know, kudos to you and U.S. News for recognizing that. I think it's it's very smart. Yeah, I feel so lucky. And I have a great boss who I love. And, you know, I'm definitely, I definitely know that um, I'm, I'm lucky in that way for sure. Let's talk about success. Your so money moment, Kim. I mean, you've had several wins, uh, professionally at least, from your book publishings, your promotions at work, uh, the, you know, the entrepreneurial stuff you do uh, outside of your nine to five. What would you say, though, is your proudest financial moment? What happened and why was it your so money moment? It was when my husband and I bought our house. It was our first house. It's the house we still live in. I think we could live in it forever. We basically, my husband and I lived like college students on such a tight budget until we were in our thirties or he was in his thirties. I just turned 30. We had our um, first child. And even after she was born, we still lived in a one bedroom apartment with like a futon from grad school. We literally were just saving as much as we could. And because of that, because we were so frugal then, that is what let us buy our house. And so I think that's what I am proudest of in our financial life. Um, And now, you know, I I love having our house and it's let us, we have a son now too, and we can all fit and, you know, it's, yeah, that's what I feel best about. Good for you. And how long ago did you buy that house? It was um, five and a half years ago. So when you were living like college students, like really share with us what that was like. <laughs> Tell oh, us. Oh my gosh. We want the good and the bad. Okay. So literally, I mean, we had all of our old furniture. We hadn't bought any significant expensive furniture. And all of us, my newborn, my husband and I, we were all living in the same, sleeping in this one bedroom. And, you know, everything was just really out of date and 
as cheap as possible because we wanted, we knew we wanted to save for a house. That was our goal. So we were willing to sacrifice the niceness. And um, yeah, and then we just sort of like slowly as after we bought our house, every, you know, bought the things we needed for the house, but it wasn't what all at once we didn't buy the new furniture and everything. So yeah, I mean, it was there were times we were a little envious of our friends with nicer places, but I think ultimately it paid off. Yeah, I would say so. It kind of reminds me of this exercise that I want to encourage Tim and I to do in the new year, which is to go back to zero with the budget and just pile on what we need now. Because honestly, we haven't really done an audit of our spending for years. I mean, we've been married almost, oh gosh, we well, three years. We've been parents now for 15 months. We are in the involved in a big real estate project, like it's time. And so, um, we're definite candidates for that. And you guys, you and your husband, um, inspiring. That's all I can say. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Let's talk habits now, Kim. What's your number one financial habit? Uh, so money ritual that you have. Okay. I'm going to mention this again because that's it. This is so central, but it's my binders. I am kind of obsessed with my financial binders. I'm imagining like trapper keepers. (laughs) At your, in your linen closet or something like well basically yes so um i i did get i made them all color coordinated with file tabs and everything because sometimes i got the kind of file tabs where there's a folder too because sometimes you get oddly shaped papers from your mortgage or you know property taxes or whatever so it basically lets me and my husband because we each manage different parts of our finances i pay the bills. He does more of the investment stuff, but we have to talk about it all. So we literally go through our binders together and we talk about, you know, what do we need to update? What new accounts do we need? How should we shift our investments? And having a central place um, for me, it's the binders. It just helps make those conversations happen. All right, let's do some so money fill in the blanks. And starting with if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is pay off my mortgage and fully fund my kids' college accounts. Nice. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix. So, okay, that's the service where they bring you a box of clothes based on your preferences. You keep what you want and pay for it and send back the rest. Yes, it's personal shopping that is essentially $20 a month. And I actually find I pay less for the clothes because if you keep everything, you get a huge discount. Saves me so much time. I mean, as mom of two kids, I'm at soccer games on the weekends. I don't have time to go shopping. And I need to look professional, you know, so I consider it a professional investment. Do you like the clothes? That's like, like yeah, because I mean, obviously you like them, but like, I, that's my biggest concern is that I'm just going to get up. I have very particular taste. I like a lot of basic things, but then like, I don't want just to get a box of basic things every month. No. Um, no, I love them. You are way more stylish than I am. So your standards are probably way higher, but to me, they're amazing. And it's $20 a month. Um, and then that's just for the, I guess the, the time and the labor of them putting together that box for you. And then you get to do you, do you ever get anything on discount? What's the discount if you buy everything? Yeah, it's uh, I think it's twenty. It's either twenty or twenty five percent off everything when you buy everything. And to be a little more frugal, I actually only do it every other month um, because I don't need that many new clothes. Yeah, you don't so need that every many clothes. Month. Yeah. All right, I might try it out. Hmm. You should. You've inspired me. All yeah. right. Uh, one thing that I splurge on. Splurge. Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> <It's> coffee. <laughs> 
<laughs> you didn't even have to think about that one. I didn't even get a chance to finish. Okay, so it's coffee. How do you take your coffee? Oh my gosh, every way. I just, I literally, I love buying coffee. So I know that's the big personal finance no no, but oh, whatever. To me, like, yeah, like buying a latte, like, especially um, like in the afternoons, I mean, it makes me more productive. So I think it's justified. All right. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is invest aggressively. I think my whole, my parents being so frugal, also being kind of conservative um, with money. I think that's, so that's what I kind of had to learn as, as I grew up is that it's okay to take risks like I did with the tech stocks and to, you know, be aggressive because over time it probably will pay off. When I donate, I like to give to blank because I like to give to UNICEF and that was really inspired by you know, the refugee crisis and the crazy, you know, images and news stories we've all been reading. Yeah. It's so heart wrenching. And, um, I don't know, hope, I don't know when it's going to end, but I think, I I think I watched it on 60 minutes one night and it was just, you you know, how can you not help after seeing what is happening, um, and generations destroyed because of this. All right. Let's try to end this on a slightly happier note. Um, I'm Kim Palmer, and I'm so money because... I love saving money more than I love spending money. Really? Yeah, it feels so good. Well, yeah, if you can buy the house of your dreams and... um, you know, have a great wardrobe at the same time. Although you're spending money for that, but you're also saving too. Kim Palmer, thank you so much. I definitely want to have you back when Smart Mom Rich Mom comes out because that is going to be hitting home for me and I know a lot of my listeners. So thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Kim Palmer, her website, Kimberly-Palmer.com. She's also on Twitter at Alpha Consumer. We have all this info at SoMoneyPodcast.com where you can also find the transcript and comments from this episode and all episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money. So money.